Welcome to One Cause Church. We hope you enjoy this inspirational message. Now we're going to get into the Word today. I have a lot of steak for you, so I hope you came hungry. Um, I hope you came ready to eat, because we are going to dive in and and cover a lot of really good stuff that the Lord's just uh, been revealing to me. Um, So I'll pray and we'll get going. Uh, Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time. I thank you, thank you for your great love. I thank you for the word that goes forth, Father. And I thank you that it is not by might and not by power, but it is by your spirit. I thank you that every word is anointed of you, ordered of you, and that it finds the right place in the heart so that it can yield the harvest that it needs to for the life of this people today. I thank you, Father, that you just bless us and keep us, and I thank you, Jesus, for your great sacrifice. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. So um, how many tickles does it take to make an octopus laugh? Ten. Ten tickles. I know, I know. You guys thought that because Pastor Eric wasn't here, you were going to be spared. <laughs> what you didn't realize is that uh, in a couple months, Miss Emma Lou Gray is going to join us. So I have to, like, practice my dad jokes. And it's just, it's just going to get worse, I'm telling you right now, right? Like, selling the earlier service, I honestly think that the whole purpose of a dad joke, it's like a schadenfreude kind of thing, right? It's a joy in the misery of others, right? So they're not supposed to laugh. You're telling the joke for you. Um, is really how it is, and you want to see how much pain you can actually uh, make uh, in the process. So uh, thank you. Thank you for being my punching bag this morning, um, and, and you gave me a lot of joy with your groans. Um, I love you. I love you. We're actually going to be talking uh, a little bit about pain and groaning today, um, talking about uh, a world that is in pain and a world that groans uh, for the sons of God to reveal themselves and kind of what that means and what that looks like. More specifically, though, we're going to be talking about the Word, the Word of God, which is powerful and living, as Hebrews 4 tells us, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword. And the word double-edged or two-edged means twice spoken. So God speaks it to us, and then we're to speak it into this earth. We're then to speak it into our lives. Living, living and powerful, it's, it's an interesting idea. Right? That, that words could be living, that words have life in them. Proverbs says that, uh, that the, word, the word is life to those who find it and health to all their flesh. Right? So, so I want to dig into that. Right? Like, what does that actually mean? What, what, what is powerful about the word? What is alive about the word? What is the word that is the game changer? Right? And once we understand that, I think then we're able to actually walk in peace and in joy. Once we understand that, we're able to see the victory, understanding we already have the victory. And then we're able to live it in a way that allows our lives to be as full as they're supposed to be in God. And a lot of times it's just a lack of understanding of what the word is and what the word means that separates us from realizing the promises of God. So we're going to fix all that today. Amen? Right? We're going to get into the Word. We're going to read a lot of the Word, and we're going to discover what the Word says about the Word. There's a whole lot going on right in that. I don't, it's, don't, don't try to follow it too much. But uh, Psalm 138.2, we're going to open up with that as a notion about the Word. I will worship towards your holy temple, says the psalmist, and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all 
your name. It's a powerful statement right there. That God would magnify his word above his name, which is supposed to be above everything, right? So what does that mean? (laughs) That's a little confusing. Who's higher? Your word or your name? Well, the reality of it is, is that if his word can't be trusted, then his name can't be trusted. So God actually has to exalt his word above his own name because his word is the thing that maintains, keeps, protects, ensures, guarantees his name. So it's very, very necessary for God to protect his word. It is. Which is to say God can't just do whatever he wants. There's this notion that, you know, God can kind of do whatever he wants. No, he can't. If he said it, he has to do it, period. There, there is no discussion about that because otherwise then he's not God and then his name means nothing. So God can't do whatever he wants. He has to keep his word. And in that is a beautiful, beautiful promise for us because sometimes we will look around and we will think, do you remember your word? I don't really see your word at work here, right? What about the earthquake in Mexico City? What about the hurricanes we just experienced, right? What about my marriage? What about my kids? What about the report from the doctor? What about this one issue that I just can't seem to get over? What about the hurt and the pain and the loss? Where's your word? Where's your word? Right? I mean, you said one thing, and I am seeing something completely different. What up, bro? Where are we at? Right? Where's your word at? I need your word. And what we need to understand is that God actually has an answer for that. Scripture actually has an answer for that. We don't have to sit and wait and wonder what's all that about. It's actually addressed. And we're going to address it today. We're going to go to the book of Isaiah and find out what the word looks like to God. So in Isaiah 55, starting in verse 10, it says this. And this is God speaking through the prophet of Isaiah. So these are God's words here. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there. Now that's interesting. God sends his word out and the word doesn't come back. It's not like he takes his words back, in other words. If he gives you his word, you have his word. He does not take his word back. That's important. And do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud. That's interesting. So there's a purpose to the word that he sends that he will not take back. And the purpose is this, that it may give seed to the sower. So the word is seed. And bread to the eater. So the word is provision. The word is life. The word is what sustains us, that we can live off of it. It's what all of that says. And then it says this in verse 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, praise the Lord. But it shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. The word is seed. So God sows his word. And then there's a harvest. God sows his word. And then there's something to be reaped from that. And that crop, that harvest, never fails. That seed never fails, is what this says. I'm going to say that one more time. God's seed, that is his word, that he has planted, 
never fails. Doesn't seem like that, though. Doesn't seem like that sometimes. You watch the news, and please don't, you know? I'm not asking you to be uninformed about the world. I just, I don't, I don't know... I don't know if the news is what we should be trusting. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not making any claims about Fox News and I don't, or about uh, uh, the news or fake news. And I'm not, I don't care if you're a Fox News watcher or a CNN news watcher, right? I don't care if you read blogs online. I don't care who you talk to about that, right? The reality of it is, is that there, there's a report of what we see in the world and then there's a greater truth, right? And, and I'm telling you, you can be as anxious as you want to be, uh, but I don't know why you would be. Um, so... What about all that, though? What about all that that we see out there? And then what about what we live in our lives? What about the pain in that? What about the problems that we experience there? Because sometimes I feel like I've been given a word of God or a promise of God, and, and things just did not go that way, right? Like, that is not what happened, Lord, right? What do we do then? What, what, did, what did Scripture say? Did God's word fail? It's an important question to ask. It is. And in order to answer it, we're going to go to uh, the book of all books with the chapter of all chapters, Romans 8, right? And it is just pure gold. There isn't anything in there that you're not just like, oh, revelation. You know, I mean, it's wonderful, right? If you want to spend time anywhere, spend time in Romans 8. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. But right in the middle of it, we have an interesting, God says something that's kind of confusing and kind of, kind of mysterious, right? It's just, huh, what, what does that mean, Lord? And I mean, we have a tendency to gloss over it because there's so much other good stuff in Romans 8 that we don't really sit and meditate on it. Today, we're going to sit and meditate on it because the Lord is actually addressing a world that is hurt and broken, broken and crying out for something. What is the something it's crying out for and how is that cry answered? By God. And so we go to Romans 8.18 and we'll start. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and this is Paul writing to the church in Rome, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So first of all, Paul says, all right, I got suffering and I got glory. And if I'm looking at suffering and I'm looking at glory, there is no comparison because as low as this could be, it will never change how high and how great this is. No comparison. There is no low that can compete with this high. There just isn't. It will be outdistanced every single time. The second thing that he says in here that's interesting is that that glory which will be revealed is not going to be revealed to us. It's not going to be revealed around us. It's not going to be shown from a distance. No, no, that glory is actually in us. There is glory in you, my friend. There is glory in you that God wants to reveal to you if you will go to him and you will let him, right? 2 Corinthians 4, 7 actually puts it this way, that we have treasure in earthen vessels, right? And so one thing that I want to encourage you in is remember, don't regard yourself according to the vessel, the earthen vessel. Regard yourself according to the treasure. And when you see other people, don't regard them according to the earthen vessel that you see. Regard them according to the treasure 
that's inside them. The glory that is in you is in them. It's in all of us. And we, when we remember that, we can speak to the glory and not to the vessel. Amen? And we can call forth the glory instead of dealing with the vessel. Amen? So, as we walk then, we have, <laughs> we have a dilemma in front of us. Because we do have suffering and we do have glory. Let's keep reading in, a, in Romans 8 and, and find out what, what Paul has for us next. We'll go to verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, so this is, this is part of the issue here, right? That creation is waiting for something, and what it's waiting for is the revealing of the sons of God. You, me, us, we are all sons and daughters of God. So we need to understand the glory that's in us because creation needs that revealed to it the same way we need it revealed to us. Amen? Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now here we get really deep. Because here's the reality, if you're reading your, your, this text in, in your Bible, you'll realize that the word it is italicized, which means it was added, which means it's not actually in the original translation, and it changes very significantly the meaning of this scripture. If we take that out, it says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected in hope. Ooh. So creation... The it isn't actually the thing that is being subjected in hope. God is actually subjecting himself to hope. Do you know that you have a God who hopes? Do you know that you have a God who uses faith? Think about that for a minute, right? Because faith is the substance of things hoped for. So you have a God who understands faith because he created it, but also because he does it. You have a God who understands hope, not only because he created it, because he does it. You have a God that understands so completely who you are and where you are. He is not distant. He is not far off. He understands. He understands. And he's not asking you to do anything he hasn't done. And he's going to help you do it. And he can help you do it because he's done it. And once we, we get a hold of that revelation, it opens up something new to us. We have a tendency to hope like, come on, number six, right? Or go, Cowboys. You know what I mean? <laughs> In my instance, it's go, Texas. Oh, this is not, no, no. And, and so that's how we hope. Right? We hope, we hope in these things that, eh, maybe, you know, let's flip a coin and find out. Uh, and in, in the case of Texas, it's mostly tails, um, not heads. The, uh, God doesn't hope that way. God doesn't hope that way at all. His hope is a sure thing. God hopes with certainty. God hopes with conviction. God hopes knowing that that hope is a truth because his word never fails. So he does not hope in things that might happen. He doesn't hope in things that can happen. He doesn't hope in things that should happen. He only hopes in things that will happen because his word never fails. So 
what's the issue then, right? If all of creation is groaning and crying out and God's word never fails and he hopes, but right now I look around and it just seems like everything is failing, what, what do I do with all of that? We're going to do a quick summary of Genesis. Yes, you guys with me on this? We're going we're to fly through it, all right? So Genesis 1, we have God. He looks out. Everything is black. Everything is dark. And he speaks to the darkness and he says, let there be light, as we know, right? And sure enough, there is. Because... The primary purpose of words is not communication, it's creation. That the world is created by our words. Because we're made in his image and he created the world with words, we create our world with words. And we can and we should. God creates the world with his words, he looks at it and he says, oh, this is good. And of course it would be because I am good and so everything I make is good. And then, you know, summarize it, we've got six days later, there's, there's man and woman on earth, they're made in his image, they are, and, and he, he, he takes a step back and he says, all of this is good, everything here is good, there is no bad here, none of it is bad, right? And he creates all of this with his words, which never fail, in the spirit of love. Why are we here? A lot of people ask that question. It's really very simple, because of who God is. God is love, and love must create. It must. It must expand. Love produces and reproduces and reproduces. It's just in its nature, and that's just who God is, so that's just what he does. And so this word of love that creates everything now is binding everything together. I want you to hear me on this. That love is what never fails. And we have that in 1 Corinthians 13.8. That love that is in his word never fails. Love never fails. His word never fails. God never fails. All three the same thing. You with me? So now we have this world that is created in love. And, and, and he looks down on Adam and Eve and he says, it's yours. It's yours. And because we're in a relationship of love, I'm going to give you a choice because love is a choice. I chose to create you. I chose to make all of this, right? And you too are going to have a choice. So if at any point in time you want out of this good thing that we've created, all you have to do is eat from that tree. And God takes a step back and he rests and he gives it to Adam and Eve. Why? Because he trusts in what he makes. He, he trusts his creation. He, he has faith in his creation. He has hope in his creation. He has hope in the love that he made. And his hope is not in him being a control freak who is over everything and controlling everything, his hope is in the love that made it and his word and that love never fail. You with me? You understand now? So then Adam and Eve sin. They eat from the tree and it's looking like, oh, that was a real bad call, bro. Like, not a good move, right? Like, couldn't you, couldn't you have done something about this? Couldn't you have seen this? But there's a greater thing here. It wasn't about controlling Adam and Eve's decision. It was about the hope in the world that he created in love. You with me? Adam and Eve sin, and when he gives Adam and Eve the garden, he says, take dominion, rule, because you're like me. And he speaks to the spirit then. He created Adam and Eve in his image, and God is three parts, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So he creates Adam and Eve in three parts as well, body in which they live, Soul, which is their mind, will, and emotions, the thing that decides, right? And the spirit, which is actually who they are, because they're connected to his spirit. And so because of that, then he's, he speaks to the spirit them, and he says, go ahead and rule. But if you do this, if you eat of the tree, if you ever want out of this, 
on that day you shall die. And what it actually says in the Hebrew, if you break down the verb tenses, it, it says that in dying you shall die. Why? Because there's two deaths. The first is a spiritual death, and they're cut off from the life source. The second then, as a result, is going to be a natural death that occurs as the world follows. Because now the spirit is no longer the operative thing in the earth. It isn't. It's just dirt. And we're going to see that in Genesis 3. God comes to Adam and, and he, he has a conversation with him about the consequences. And he says this in Genesis 3, starting in verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and we're not going to talk about that, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. Verse 19. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. No longer talking to the spirit, Adam. He's talking to the vessel, Adam. He's not talking to the treasure. He's talking to the clay pot he made. All this is dirt now, bro. All of it is. Because my spirit is no longer behind the wheel driving it. And that was your call. I gave it to you, which means I actually had to give it to you. I trusted you with it, which means I actually had to trust you with it. And, and this is where we are. This is where we are. And so in this moment now, we have a question. Did God's word fail? Did it? Because it looks like it did, right? It does. In this moment, it looks like somehow the word of God failed, that you should not have placed your trust in Adam, God. You should not have made the decisions that you made. And now because of that, we're facing this consequence whereby all of this world, which was good, you have now called basically dust, right? So what's up, man? Like, looks like, looks like your word failed. Let's go back to Romans 20 real quick. Uh, Romans 8.20, sorry, Brooke. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, subject, him who subjected it, or subjected in hope. I want to tell you right now, God was not subjecting himself to hope in Adam. I want to say that again. He was not subjecting himself to hope in Adam. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. What changed? What changed? What was the difference between the curse and the dirt that the earth was called and now? Let's go to John chapter 1 and talk about why his word never fails. In the beginning was the capital W word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, praise Jesus, and without him nothing was made that was made. Verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. God's hope was in his word, because the word was with him, the word was creating the world with him. The word was the life. The word was the light the entire time. There was a first Adam, but praise the Lord, there was a last Adam. And the man Jesus Christ 
was the word that never failed. That was the hope. And that is our hope. The hope of glory that is in all of us. That treasure housed in earthen vessels. And when we realize that, we understand just how sure God's game plan is. Just how much we can hope the way he hopes. Just how certain it is. Because if he trusts it, we can certainly trust it. And in understanding that, I want to tell you this right now. Consequences do not equal failure. A lot of times that's how we'll see it. There was a consequence, therefore we must have failed. No, 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 no. God's love is so much greater than that. Consequences do not equal failure. They don't. There was a consequence when Adam made the decision he made. But God made sure that his word would not fail. And so Adam's consequence was reconciled through the last Adam who came and died on a cross, was buried and rose again in order to make sure that the word would not fail. And so again, we have this idea of of the word, which is a seed, not failing. The word, which is planted, producing a harvest. And, And Jesus himself actually addresses this idea, believe it or not. We'll go to John chapter 12 really quick. John chapter 12, Jesus is talking to a group of men, and he says this, speaking of himself and speaking of his death. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. Jesus was the seed that went into the ground to produce the harvest of us. He went into the ground as one of a kind, the only son of God. The only one who is connected to the Father in that spiritual way, the way that it was in the beginning. But when he died and went into the ground and rose again, it was the promise that we too in this life will die to this world and be raised again to that spiritual reality that existed in the very beginning. That we have the power of the word in us. And that now we can walk in that reality in our lives. That you are a child of God. Because of what he did. And so, understanding that the word is something that came and dwelt among us. That the word put on flesh. That the word trusted the systems that God had created. I want you to think about this for a second. Jesus became a baby. Fragile. God trusted so much in what he created, he allowed himself to come down on this earth and live off of the systems of this earth, trusting his word would not fail. Trusting that child would not fail. That's how much faith he has in what he's created. That's how much faith we can have in what he's created. And in understanding that, I want to tell you this, God's command don't come, don't, his commands don't come with reasons. They only come with promises. So you're not always going to know why, and that's the number one question we ask, and that's the problem. The answer is not so much in why. The answer is in the promise 
that we know we have because of the truth we have received because it was given to us in him. And whenever we stop looking for reasons and start looking to the promises, that's when we can begin to see them in our lives. Whenever we hold on to that promise and say, I know it's mine because his word never fails. Because Jesus doesn't fail. When we understand that all of the promises in him are yes and amen. And then whenever we get in his presence, because in his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand pleasures forevermore. That he is the father of light. That every good and perfect gift comes down from him. And there is no variableness with that. There is no shadow of turning. That he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the reality that we have in the word gives us hope that never fails. Let's look at 8.22 through 25 as we bring this home. I'm almost done, I promise. I know we've got football games to get to. I'm not ignorant to that. I love all of you. (laughs) For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Verse 23. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Verse 24. For we were saved in this hope. So you are saved. It's done. It's over, right? And we're saved in that hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what one sees? Verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, We eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Why? Because it won't fail. This is telling us to hope the same way God hopes. This is telling us to walk by faith the same way that God, who created the whole system, does. Faith is a sure thing. Hope is a sure thing. It is not a gamble. It is not a bet. Because his word never fails. And so the last things that I want to get you here are The seed, and a lot of times we get hung up on the promise. We do. We start looking at the promise. We fixate on the promise. When am I going to see my harvest? I planted the seed of faith. When do I see the harvest? I'm going to tell you right now, the seed is the evidence of the miracle you need, not the harvest. The seed is the evidence of the miracle, not the harvest. The seed itself is the promise, not the harvest. When Israel was leaving Egypt and they had all of those miracles, it was good and it was great and it was wonderful, but they were still lost because they were chasing the miracles. When they entered into the promise, the miracles stopped because now it was time for them to take hold of the word and own and reign and conquer as victors in what they had been given. Take hold of the promises of God that you have been given and stop waiting for a harvest to experience the reality of the promise you already have in Jesus. Live it, rest in it, have peace in it, because it's done. His word never fails. And stop stepping over what you need in order to get to something you don't. Hold on to, hold on to the thing that is actually going to set you free, that already has set you free, and begin living in that right now. Understand that the reality that you have because of the fact that the word never fails is a right now reality. And don't miss the greater because you become so consumed with the lesser. If in his presence is joy and at his right hand for pleasures forevermore, stop focusing on the pleasures at his right hand and get in his presence where the pleasures are. You know what I mean? So we have a tendency sometimes to make idols out of God's promises. 
we do, when really you get both as long as you'll just take the one. You know what I'm saying? So by all means, pray and declare the promise over your life because it's yours. But don't fixate on it so much that you steer to the right hand and you miss the presence that's right in front of you. Does that make sense? And the last thing that I want to tell you is this. God forgave you. God forgave everything. He poured out all of his wrath and all of his punishment on Jesus. And when he did that, he reconciled the world to himself, which means we can live a reconciled experience with God in every way, and that his grace and his love and his forgiveness are enough to accomplish everything we need, anything we want, and will do for us what nothing else can. Sometimes we reject that. We do. Let's just be honest. We reject it because we don't feel like we deserve it, and we don't. What I am comforted by is the man who wrote Romans that we've been in. I've had some bad days, I'm not going to lie to you. I've been in some shady spots, no joke. But at no point in time did I ever pull Christians out of church and throw them in jail or stand by and hold the coats of the men who were stoning them. Know what I'm saying? Right? I'm sure you've had some dark days and you've done some bad things. Right? But the reality of it is, if he forgave Paul, come on now, and then exalted him to the head of the church, what are you worried about, right? God's grace covers everything, and his promises are a part of the right now reality of his forgiveness and reconciliation. So we don't need to obsess over what we've done. We don't need to obsess over what we see. We don't need to obsess over a world that is broken. What we need to do is reveal ourselves as the sons of God, the glory that is in us, the treasure that we hold, and we need to speak it into the world so we can see heaven on earth. We need to give to this world the love that it was created in. We need to understand that as we move and live and have our being in him, he goes with us in all things and helps us to accomplish all things. So this isn't about us trying to work it or make it happen. It's just us being who we are in him. And as we do that, the love that pours out of us reconciles all around us to his truth and to his word that never fails. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the message. For more information about One Cause Church, please visit us online at onecausechurch.com. 